This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, August 11th. I'm Matt Hoish. In today's headlines, county sees significant uptick in COVID cases, San Miguel swats at regional issues, Jazz Fest returns, and a mountain weather forecast. The more contagious Delta variant of COVID-19 continues to fuel an increase in cases throughout Colorado and San Miguel County. Across Colorado, cases and hospitalizations have been trending upward, and regional hospitals around San Miguel County have also been reporting high COVID patient uptake. That's according to County Public Health Director Grace Franklin, who provided an update on the pandemic at a Board of County Commissioners meeting this week. Although um, each hospital has varied capacity, um, they've all remarked that they are strained, whether it's staffing concerns, beds, or um, other just base level needs. However, Franklin adds, the strain on capacity due to COVID patients isn't as bad as it was late last year. Currently, she explains, there are about 550 daily COVID patients across Colorado. Last December, there were roughly 1,850. So we're not quite there yet, right? There's different stressors occurring right now, staffing, lots of turnover and fatigue there. But we know that there's things that we can flex into prior to it um, becoming a much more dire situation um, as what we saw last winter. Locally, Franklin says the county has seen a, quote, significant uptick in COVID cases over the last week, reporting 12 new cases, while the previous weeks have seen between three to six new cases. All 12 are East End residents, and eight are breakthrough cases in people who have been fully vaccinated. This really highlights the fact that we are seeing this ongoing trend of increased vaccine breakthrough. But, Franklin adds, while there has been reduced effectiveness in vaccines protecting against the Delta variant, vaccines continue to effectively protect against hospitalization and death in those who get COVID. Decision makers at the federal level, Franklin notes, are also meeting later this week to discuss COVID vaccine boosters. It's not anticipated to have a decision made at that time, but I do think that we're heading down the track of those that are over 60 and immunocompromised will be offered a booster vaccine or a third vaccine in order to um, boost up their immune immunity. Local wastewater testing data matches the recent case uptick with sampling from last week coming back from the lab showing over 400,000 COVID copies per liter. Um, Which is one of the higher numbers we've seen since um, the winter. And um, with that, they did a variant testing where um, it showed that 95% of the COVID in the wastewater um, was likely to be the Delta variant, which really tracks with that, um, how much it's grown exponentially over the last little bit. Franklin caveats the wastewater data can fluctuate over the week, but this is a concerning trend, just knowing how quickly um, the Delta we've seen spread across um, other counties. The county continues to promote vaccination as the safest solution to protect against severe outcomes from the virus. Roughly 80 percent of the eligible county population is fully vaccinated. That breaks down to roughly 90 percent of East End residents, about 55 percent of Norwood residents and about 45 percent of West End residents. But Franklin notes the vaccination rate for the region, including surrounding counties, is around 45 percent. And just knowing our workforce, our visitors, our lifestyles, where we commute in and out of other communities, that does have an impact 
on our ability to mitigate the risk of the, vac- um, um, the virus infecting people. There are no local public health orders in place, but the county strongly advises moving events outdoors when possible and increasing indoor ventilation, as well as wearing high-quality masks in indoor public spaces, even if people are fully vaccinated. I would strongly recommend businesses that work directly with the public or interacting with folks outside of their normal bubbles, um, people that they haven't had these conversations with about their comfort risk and um, where they're at, should be wearing masks. If there is a possibility to have the high-level masks, especially for restaurants, bars, um, and um, places where they are seeing really high volumes of people, that would be um, the most protective for um, their staff. That is what's going to keep their staff healthy and working and um, able to keep businesses open. The county, Franklin adds, has also been under testing. There's that balance of um, people not getting tested and um, maybe not recognizing that these mild symptoms truly are something that can be extremely contagious and um, detrimental to others. Details on local COVID testing options, as well as upcoming vaccine clinics, are available at sanmiguelcountyco.gov. What are the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats facing San Miguel County? This week, Trish Thibodeau from Region 10, a nonprofit working to support regional development across the Western Slope, provided some insight. Region 10 recently completed a SWOT analysis. That stands for Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats for the County. This SWOT analysis it was not a scientific survey. It's a snapshot in time. Um, and we also know in, in many of our, our counties is if you're in Delta, Paonia, North Fork, it's probably going to have some different responses than Delta. And I know that we've heard from San Miguel, it's like, well, we're not all the same. And so please don't take this as, you know, we're lumping you all together, you're all the same. But again, what we're interested in is looking at what are some of those trends and such. That's Thibodeau presenting before an intergovernmental meeting on Monday. She notes Region 10 received roughly 40 responses to the survey in San Miguel County. That's about 0.5% of the population. First up, strengths. What unique resources do we have that can support our a strong economy and our economic development? According to the survey, respondents saw access to outdoor recreation as San Miguel's number one strength. Number two was hospitality and tourism assets. Strong sense of community identity, attractive communities, vibrant main streets and downtowns. Across the region, those strengths look similar. Some communities also cited access to high-speed internet as a positive. When it comes to weaknesses, there's a little more variation. Thibodeau says they look at weaknesses as resource limitations. Unsurprisingly, limited housing options is at the top of San Miguel's list. Uh, distance to healthcare facilities. There was lack of local leadership. Don't know what that means. Limited opportunities for youth. And then low wages and limited access to high-speed broadband were tied. So I think it's interesting it came both as a strength and as a challenge on, on broadband. Regionally, communities placed low wages higher on the challenges list. They also named aging infrastructure and insufficient child care as regional issues. Next, opportunities. 
What can the region take advantage of to strengthen the economy? So certainly broadband infrastructure expansion, continuing to increase our broadband, increased collaboration on regional projects. We certainly saw this throughout COVID. I think the realization of the importance of thinking regionally and where we can be stronger with regional projects and many of our economies are connected throughout the region. San Miguel respondents also named moving toward local food, growing the digital economy, and increasing the number of remote workers. I know in conversations with some different communities, like, you know, can't handle anybody else coming in. The way that I think about remote workers is, I think about it as opportunities for our people who are living now to maybe upskill or up move up and and get a remote job that may provide additional income or benefits that they're not getting now. So I think there's some different ways to think about that increase in the number of remote workers. Most of the opportunities in San Miguel line up neatly with similar opportunities across the region. Finally, threats. Thibodeau names these as external forces that may have an impact on economic development. Something we've all been experiencing is construction costs. Uh, remoteness and distance from major interstates, natural disasters, population influx. When asked what economic development strategies could look like for San Miguel County, respondents said creating and preserving housing opportunities, supporting small businesses, and looking at sustainable tourism messaging and infrastructure were the top priorities. In the survey, Region 10 also asked participants to share how they saw local governments responding to the coronavirus pandemic. The majority of San Miguel response was in the four to fives, meaning they um, folks felt like it was a strong response. And then we also asked uh, open-ended questions of what are things that people would like to keep that happened during the pandemic? And I, I think certainly it's the transparency, the ability for people to participate in meetings such as this, and also that support for businesses and kind of that creativity of um, the use of Main Street. Thibodeau's presentation ends with no definitive answers or solutions when it comes to the challenges facing San Miguel or the region. But she notes Region 10 is working on ways to collaborate regionally on issues like housing and transit. This weekend, music will once again fill the air in and around Telluride Town Park as the 44th annual Telluride Jazz Festival returns after taking the year off last summer due to the pandemic. To get into the Jazz Fest spirit, KOTO spoke with Patrick Sheehan, Director of Partnerships for SBG Productions, the company that puts on the festival. The conversation began with a broad overview of what the weekend will look like. You know, it's going to be what we have done in the past in 2019 and 18 and 17, but we got a lot of exciting artists. Robert Glasper, Prez Hall, Jazz Band, and Galactic as our headliners. And then we got a lot of great other bands like the Buddha's Band, a lot of funk. So you're going to see some jazz, some funk, lots of dancing music, lots of good times in Telluride Town Park. I know there's also just a ton of opportunities to just see some free music, even for folks who haven't gotten passes for the park. Can you talk a bit about some of those opportunities just for jazz happening around town? You know, um, that's one of the big things we love to do is get the whole community involved, even if you don't have a pass. So on Thursday night here from four to six, we're doing jazz on Maine and we have student bands from all over the United States playing in different venues around town. 
um, the Floridora, the Buck, the Alanoff Gallery, and quite a few others. They all have student bands playing, so um, you can just walk around and check out some music. Um, and then on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we have the Society Stage at Elks Park, which offers free programming in the midday. And then on Sunday, we have the New Orleans Second Line Parade featuring New Orleans band Bonorama and the Hooligan Brass Band. And whoever else has instruments and wants to march, you're welcome to come join. Unfortunately, the pandemic is not yet over. COVID is still on people's minds. So what are the precautions the festival is taking when it comes to COVID and public health? So we are requiring um, proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test within 48 hours to enter the festival. For those who aren't vaccinated, we have free testing available at the box office. That takes 15 to 20 minutes. We're kind of aligning with a lot of what the um, national festival industry and a lot of the Colorado venues are doing. So once you're in the venue, are there any masking or distancing requirements? Or is it like once you're in, you're just good to go? We are encouraging masks where you can't keep social distance. Um, We have tripled our hand sanitizer stations. So we're leaving it up to people, but we are encouraging masks and um, we're encouraging people to spread out. We have doubled our footprint. So normally at Jazz, we don't have the Bear Creek ball field. This year we do. So for a 3,000-person festival, it's going to feel very wide open compared to what it has in the past. I'm not going to ask you to pick favorites, but just when it comes to the musical acts, can you give us one returning act that you're really looking forward to and one first-time-ever playing in Telluride act that you're really looking forward to? I'm pretty excited about Galactic. They've come here a lot. This year, they're bringing Angelica Jelly Joseph, who plays a lot with Tank and the Bangas. Prez Hall has been here before, so we're excited for that. But they haven't been to jazz ever or in a long time, I believe. So that just seems like a great fit. Then I'm excited for a lot of the student bands. You know, it's fun seeing them year after year and some of them grow. And they're just like incredible student programs. For new bands, I'm really fired up for the Budos band. Um, I've been a fan for a long time. And they're 11-piece brass band and just super high energy. They're on Daptone Records and... It's definitely going to be a live show to witness. Patrick Sheehan is the director of partnerships for SBG Productions. They are the folks putting on the Telluride Jazz Festival, which takes place this weekend in Town Park and all around Telluride. Patrick, thanks so much for jumping in and chatting. Thank you for having me. We'll see you guys this weekend. The Telluride Jazz Festival runs from Friday, August 13th to Sunday, August 15th. More information is available at telluridejazz.org. For anyone without tickets to the main stage shows in the park, KOTO will broadcast from the park Friday night from 5 p.m. to close, featuring performances from The Dip, The Hot Sardines, and Robert Glasper. Listeners can tune in online or on the radio. Infrastructure and equipment failures were not the cause of the death last week of a woman from Tucson, Arizona, who fell from the Via Ferrata in Telluride. That's according to an investigation conducted by the San Miguel County Sheriff's Office, which notes the fall was the result of an apparent unwitnessed misstep while the woman was unclipped from the Via Ferrata system west of the main event. The incident was the first death on the Via Ferrata due to a fall or traumatic injury. 
In a public statement about the investigation's conclusion, the sheriff's office stresses the Via Ferrata is a wilderness route that requires experience and expertise to navigate safely and should be traveled with due caution. The route is on U.S. Forest Service land. A public affairs officer for the Forest Service notes the agency has not yet reviewed the investigation. Once they have, they will decide if they plan to take any further actions. The San Miguel Power Association is pushing back plans for fire mitigation on Red Mountain in Ure County. According to SMPA, the delay comes after the Colorado Department of Transportation refused to issue a permit for prep work in August. CDOT has not yet refused a permit for a second work period in September, and if they receive the permit, SMPA says they will use that window to remove as much dry fuel as possible. The electric utility says they remain committed to removing all dry fuels from the right-of-way in order to lower the risk of wildfire and will do so as soon as resources are available and they are permitted. SMPA is also postponing construction to rebuild aging transmission lines and install fiber optic lines in the area. The utility cites challenges around weather, costs, and outcry from surrounding communities about road closures. SMPA says they are holding off on the work to reassess the project's costs and benefits. A stretch of I-70 in Glenwood Canyon is slated to reopen to traffic Saturday afternoon after closing roughly two weeks ago due to mudslides. The Colorado Department of Transportation announced the reopening on Wednesday. I-70 is a critical connection between western Colorado and the rest of the state, as well as for national east-west traffic. According to the U.S. Department of Transportation, on average, 17,000 vehicles travel the highway each day, of which 2,200 are trucks. The closure led Governor Jared Polis to issue two state disaster declarations to authorize support from the Colorado National Guard. The DOT granted $11.6 million in emergency relief funds for the repairs, which have required removing thousands of tons of debris. The federal money will reimburse CDOT for work, including the removal of material, stabilizing slopes, and conducting surveys and assessments of damage to structures. Locally, San Miguel County has reopened a section of its Idorado Legacy Trail that closed due to mudslides. According to the county, there's still some work to be done along the trail's stone wall, and they're working to revegetate the area. The county says during the cleanup, crews trucked out almost 3,000 tons of debris. Colorado hemp farmers are cheering a plan to give them more access to grant money and other benefits. Governor Jared Polis says the U.S. Department of Agriculture is endorsing a statewide proposal to grow the hemp industry, which was legalized in 2014. Polis says the federal government's latest blessing will make it less risky for farmers. And we are able to utilize these properties for more sustainable fuel and feed options, and a lot of that research is being done right here in Colorado. The sky is the limit. Polis removed restrictions on the industry as a member of Congress in 2014. Colorado's pilot program for the crop expanded rapidly in its first six years, but production cooled down last year because of a supply glut. The Colorado River is grappling with shortages this year, but it was a very different story nearly 30 years ago. 
High flows coming through a dam just upstream of the Grand Canyon were ripping it apart. Inside Climate News reporter Judy Fays rode down the canyon then as part of a floating press tour. She recently revisited the canyon and found that the park is still facing water challenges. They're just different ones now. Riding a rubber raft down the boisterous Colorado River rapids made the floating press conference fun. But fast-moving water from the Glen Canyon Dam was actually the problem back then. Water shooting through the turbines was wrecking the river environment. What we're trying to do is to figure out how do the operations of the dam impact this? Are there thresholds in dam operation where we tend to accelerate erosion of these beaches? And are there thresholds where we might tend to start to rebuild some of these beaches? Dave Wegner led scientific studies of the dam's impacts for the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation back in 1990. Longtime NPR reporter Howard Berkus was on that trip too, and he gathered this audio. What's happening now is we're seeing the water come up. A stick planted in the sand on the river's edge during lunchtime showed how radically the river rose and fell, two feet in an hour, up to 13 in a day. Underwater. The stick is underwater. Wigner was illustrating what happened every time dam operators released extra water through the hydroelectric turbines. We're releasing more water at Glen Canyon Dam in response to electrical demand in the power grid. The water blasts were chewing up the sandy beaches that rafters used. They upended wildlife habitat and aquatic life. And the frigid fluctuations put endangered species at risk, like the humpback chub, which is a fish that likes warm water. New laws and policies followed the floating press conference in 1990. Scientific research prompted federal agencies to operate the dam with the environment in mind. Humpback chub are on the rebound. Camping beaches are rebuilding. We can see what effect those changes over a couple of decades have been having and how the ecosystem is responding. Scott Vanderkoy of the U.S. Geological Survey oversees Grand Canyon Science Now. He says studying the Colorado River's most iconic reach is still important after two decades of drought and climate change. There's a sense of urgency there in trying to understand what is happening and how quickly and how much things will change. The reason for continuing the research became clear this spring. I returned to the Grand Canyon to see how it's facing the problem of too little water. Springs weren't gushing the way they used to. Cactuses were shriveling. You're pointing at the cactus. Yeah, you know you're dealing with a drought when you're seeing desert plants falling over for lack of water. USGS researcher Helen Fairley was documenting changes in beaches and vegetation this spring when I ran into her in the canyon. She's been doing field work in the Grand Canyon for decades. And like me, she found it odd how bighorn sheep were flocking to the riverbanks in spring. Generally, they don't come down until uh, late summer, fall, when the water sources up high dry out. I told her how a bighorn had glared down at our camp from a rocky ridge one night, as if we'd elbowed its hungry family away from the dinner buffet. Well, this year, apparently, they don't have water up high, and that's why we're getting so many sheep down along the river at this time of year, which is really unusual. Water became a preoccupation for us, too. It was hotter and drier than usual, and our five-gallon water jugs ran out surprisingly fast. We spent lots of time planning how to refill them. A few times we pumped river water so we'd have something to drink. About 40 million people rely on Colorado River water. Flows have been declining over two decades, and climate change is speeding up evaporation. 
Well, I guess we can just top them all The off. river is more than just a water supply for the region's cities and farms. Researcher Helen Fairley says we should remember it supports ecosystems too. Future policy ought to reflect that. Hopefully there's ways to do it smartly and strategically that won't create additional environmental devastation in the process. 30 years ago, Lake Powell just upstream of the canyon was full. Now it's two-thirds empty. And what the people who rely on the Colorado River are realizing is that too much water is an easier problem to solve than too little. I'm Judy Faze. That story was produced from recordings made by retired NPR reporter Howard Burks. It is part of ongoing coverage of water in the West in collaboration with Inside Climate News and public radio station KUNC. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly cloudy skies tonight with a low around 55 and areas of smoke. Thursday, expect partly sunny skies with a high in the mid-70s and scattered showers and thunderstorms, along with areas of smoke. Thursday night should be cloudy with a low around 50 and a 20% chance of precipitation with areas of smoke. Friday, expect partly sunny skies with a high in the mid-70s and a 60% chance of showers and thunderstorms. Friday night calls for mostly cloudy skies with a low around 50 degrees and a 60% chance of showers and thunderstorms. This has been the news for Wednesday, August 11th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 728-3206. And now, personal commentaries. Hey, Coda listeners. It's the absolute last call for Coloradans to enroll in health coverage. After August 15th, which is this Sunday, you'll need a qualifying event to enroll in health insurance. If you need help with the process, Tri-County Health Network's health coverage guides can help you find low-cost, and no-cost options that work for you. Go to tchnetwork.org backslash programs backslash insurance dash assistance or call 970-708-7096 to get insured today. Hey there, it's Sarah Holbrook here, the executive director of the Pinhead Institute providing STEM education in rural southwestern Colorado. Hey everyone, Don't forget to look up tonight. You want to know why? Because it's the top viewing night for the Perseid meteor showers, which comes through every, uh, like, mid-August. And from my NASA newsletter that I got in my inbox today, it says, a meteor is a space rock or meteorite that enters Earth's atmosphere. As the space rock falls towards Earth, the resistance, or drag, of the air on the rock makes it extremely hot. What we see is as a shooting star, it's actually not the rock. Believe this, it's rather the glowing hot air as the hot rock zips through the atmosphere. When Earth encounters many meteoroids at once, we call it a meteor shower. Isn't that crazy? What we're seeing isn't the rock, it's not the star, it's uh, hot air. Crazy, crazy. You want to know what else we just saw today? So yeah, my friend Katie and I, we were outside and we were looking at this beautiful little bird with what, what, what did you call it? Like a kind of a checkerboard breast? It was a fledgling robin. It was a fledgling robin. And the way you tell a fledgling robin from a regular robin, let's talk to Katie, our director of education. She knows a little something about birds. Oh, hey, hey. Um, yeah, we saw a fledgling robin and it has a checkered chest, which you can tell. And often people will think fledglings are uh, in desperate need of rescue, but really 
they are just learning how to fly. So they don't fully fly when they leave the nest and the parents are protecting them. So the best thing you can do is really leave them alone. Yeah. And then she told me some crazy fact, and that is if your cat bites a bird but doesn't give it a lethal blow, it might still be a lethal blow. Why, Katie? Because they... Their saliva is poisonous to birds. Because their saliva is poisonous to birds. It's pretty much a deathly blow. It's pretty much a deathly blow, even if it's not a death bite. Um, So keep your cats away from birds. If you find a fledgling robin or other baby birds on the ground, leave them where they are because their moms or dads are close by. Is it mainly moms, Katie? It's both. Both. But if the bird if the bird is naked or unfeathered, it needs to be put in a nest. I'm talking strictly fledglings, which means their tail their tail feathers are shorter. They kind of flop around, but they can't fully fly. You'll be able to tell the difference if it needs help or not. Yeah, so it looks more like a bird, but it isn't yeah. like fully, fully, fully a bird. Correct. Those you leave alone. You leave those alone. Yeah, ones. and but you if- want to know what? We saw nature at work because what was happening when we saw the fledgling? Cute little mama bird? Coming to feed it. Coming to feed it. So that's the beautiful thing about nature and science. Speaking of science, Panhead is offering amazing science classes after school starting this fall. So check out the schedule at www.pinheadinstitute.org. Thanks so much. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you'd like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.